Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often, they are founded in fact. Broadcasting from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California, I'm Krista, and we are the Sixth Sense Society. Welcome again to another episode of the Sixth Sense Society. Tonight, we are going to be talking to Lama Kathy Wesley, Wesley, sorry, about the path of the Bodhisattva and maybe some other topics too. But first, before we get going, uh, we're going to have Michael talk to us about upcoming shows. Yeah, we've got some really great shows coming up in the next little while. Um, but next week in particular, we have Krista's dad, Dr. George Swimmer, and he's going to be talking about Edgar Casey and past lives. Um, just want to mention also, to those of you tuning in, um, with the cosmic weather, our astrology forecast, that now it's its own separate show on YouTube. Um, at the first of the month, we'll have it for every every month. So if you guys are tuning in for that, go back and find the episode for May and give it a listen, and um, you'll find all your astrology information there. So I'm not going to take much time because we have a great guest, and I want to really get into it. So I'm going to kick it back over to Krista, and have a great show, guys. Great. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm going to give a, a brief uh, bio of Lama Kathy. She's been a student of Kempo Karta Rinpoche since 1977, and she participated in the first three-year retreat led by Kempo Rinpoche at Carmeling Retreat Center in upstate New York, and thus earned the title of Retreat Lama. Lama Kathy now serves as a resident teacher at the Columbus Karmathegsim Choling, or KTC, and travels to teach at other Buddhist centers throughout the country, including the local one, Santa Monica KTC. She's a graduate of Ohio State University with a bachelor's degree in journalism. She and her husband, Mike, live in Newark, Ohio. So welcome, Lama Kathy. It's so great to have you on the phone with us. Uh, my first question, uh, sorry. Oh, thanks for having me. It's it's a delight. My first question is really quite simple. I'm kind of curious as to how you even were became interested in Buddhism in 1977. Um, well, when uh, I was young, I grew up in, uh, I guess you could call it a semi-religious household, uh, because my parents uh, were Christian, but they were of two different Christian faiths. And so uh, they raised us, and uh, they decided to raise us in the Catholic faith. So um, I grew up believing in Christianity and practicing Christianity and having a lot of faith. And in fact, I had a lot of deep prayer experiences when I was a child. And then when I got to college, like a lot of folks who go to college, they lose their touch. They lose touch with the church of their childhood and become distant from it mm -hmm. because life is so full at college, there's so much going on. And then when I was a senior in college, I found that the stress of college life was getting to be overwhelming, and instead of deciding to go back to church, I decided instead to take a yoga class, and the yoga class uh, opened the door for me to learn meditation, and I instantly knew, because my stress was being relieved by the meditation, that there was something going on there, and that there was something I needed to know more about, 
I had actually read about Buddhism when I was young, because mm -hmm. lots of kids read encyclopedias, and they got a lot of information about Eastern religions when the Beatles started studying Hinduism and meditation. And so a lot of kids got exposed to the idea of meditation, but really they didn't learn how to practice. And so when I got into that yoga class, I said, okay, I've got to learn more about this. And interestingly enough, when I uh, came to Newark, Ohio. It's a little town about 45 miles east of uh, the capital city, Columbus, mm -hmm. Ohio. And um, when I went there uh, to work for a newspaper there, I had the interesting experience of, uh, of hearing that a Tibetan Buddhist lama was going to be visiting the little yoga studio. Wow. I was a I know, in Newark, Ohio, right? Oh. It was, I know, it was a town of about 45,000 people at that time, and who would have thought that that would happen? But interestingly enough, that is where I met the person who became my teacher, Kempo Kartar Rinpoche, who had been sent to the United States just the year before. Yeah, that's right, right. the 16th Jalan Karmapa, and... And so I met him there, and I, when I met him, I got a chance to interview him because, after all, journalist, right. interview, makes right. sense, right? So I did that, and meeting him, I got to a real sense that he had a lot of gentility as well as deep wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so that was – and so meeting that unique individual – who had all of the qualities I wanted to develop, mm -hmm. that was really what attracted me to Buddhism in the, in the end. Wow. Yeah, he's, he's a remarkable person. I, I remember when I first met him, and then um, I, even though I'm not really associated strongly with the centers anymore, he did come out here, I forget when it was, about five, six years ago. And so I just went to the talk again, and I've always felt a really strong uh, connection to him, even away. And he's he is a remarkable person. There's there's no doubt about it. Um, so yeah. that that's that's one step into Buddhism. But then you went further than a lot of people do. So you went into a three year <laughs> retreat, <laughs> and so yeah, so was that right. just one of those sequential things that you decided along the way, or you know that you you just got deeper into it as you practiced, and it made sense to you at the time. It, it, all of that. I, I mean, because when you first start practicing Buddhism, they don't say, oh, by the way, sign up here for a three-year retreat. It wasn't <laughs> like that at all. In fact, the majority of people never uh, go on a lengthy retreat of any type. And don't forget, there are many, many styles of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. There's the, uh, the Theravadan tradition and the various... Um, Zen traditions and the Tibetan traditions. So the Tibetans are um, among those who do longer retreats, but they those are those training retreats follow lots and lots of preparation. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, most people begin with quiet sitting meditation, like most folks have learned. Right. And I did that for a while, and then I learned about compassion meditation. Did that for a while. Learned mantra meditation, did that for a while, did some preliminary practices, which involved um, prayers and purification, mantras and things like that. And then I, the, the three-year retreat at that point was the next thing to do. So it was mm -hmm. sequential, but by the same token, not everybody makes that choice. Right. And because, because I was in a unique situation in that 
um, I was married at that time, Mm -hmm. but we did not have children. And so because of my unique situation, it, it, it was okay from my point of view worked with my husband on this, and I said, what do you think? And he said, well, I wish there was some other way you could get the training, but going to upstate New York for three years is, I guess, is what we're going to have to settle for. And so, so, but I always knew from the first time I heard about the three-year retreat, I always knew that it was something I wanted to do, even though from an intellectual point of view, I, I had no reason to to want to do that, um, but but it was it came from within me, and the mm. only thing I can say now is that it had to be uh, a karmic influence. From sounds a like it, experience. yeah. It it does yeah. sound like that, you know, just because it all seemed to just flow in a lot of ways that you with a man that would accept that too, and you know, your life kind of worked around it. Though I'm sure it was arduous. I can only imagine. Uh, coming back into the world after that, <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was something. Yes, the the um, uh, there's a there was a, a feature film, an adventure film uh, called Cast Away. That was oh, this came out in the '90s, I think. Tom Hanks plays a castaway on right. an island, and he's on this island for I don't know four years, at some lengthy period of time. And there's this wonderful scene after he has come back when. Um, uh, a banquet is thrown in his honor, and after having been in this very small place, uh, only talking to himself, essentially, for four years, he's bombarded with all of this stimuli of all these people, and then after having eaten nothing but fish on this island, you know, for all these years, this banquet is put in front of him, and there's a certain, um, you can see, like, the, the, the complete, feeling of being overwhelmed by the stimulation of society mm-hmm. you can see it in his eyes and that's about what it felt like i said they got it they they understood what it was like to be outside of the regular flow of life mm-hmm. and seeing only a small group of people taking instruction doing meditation most of the day different forms of meditation but most of the day and then uh and then after the time period trying to return uh, you're both of the world, but not of the world. So it's a, it's an interest. It was a definitely uh, it was an experience. <laughs> so um, the topic I picked today is um, perhaps because I, I did study with Kempo Rinpoche, and one of the things I noticed about all of his teachings is he really always emphasized developing bodhicitta and loving kindness and compassion, no matter what, and that none of the rest of the teachings of Vajrayana would make any sense. And so it it made a big impression on me, the concept of the Bodhisattva. But I think that even I sometimes wonder, like, what is it really to be on this path of the Bodhisattva, especially as an ordinary person um, in a a world that really needs, I think, uh, teachings and methods of working with developing more compassion. So maybe you can start with just a little bit about what, how you see the bodhisattva in the path itself. You know, I think what you're saying is very true. I think many people who uh, come to us and they want to learn to meditate, uh, they do express an interest in understanding compassion and how to have more compassion for themselves, mm-hmm. as well as how to have how to be a compassionate person in this world, which can be so difficult and so rough and and so forth and so on. I think 
in a way, I almost feel like modern society, excuse me, um, modern society has shown us what the um, end result of um, of individualism can bring. You know, it's mm-hmm. um, individualism is not necessarily uh, it's wonderful, but we do lose community. We lose a sense of community when we develop ourselves individually in our own little um, little places. Uh, people are using the word silo, like the the farm silo. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're, they're they're saying people are siloed. In other words, they're they're almost like in their own little cubicles. Very they're true. They're not just in cubicles at work. You know, they're mm-hmm. not just in cubicles at work. They're in cubicles in their life. And and I think that this um, individualism is is great as far as it goes, but we have begun to see some of the disadvantages of it, especially when we can't even speak to one another without taking a, a tone of superiority toward others or negativity toward others. And so I think that the ideal of a bodhisattva who can be compassionate in all circumstances has some appeal at this particular point in time, although you could say that uh, since the beginning of time, it has always been time for more love and compassion among humans. But, um, but I think that for the person who wants to develop their love, um, it, it's important to recognize the impact that this world has on them and on others. In other words, the Buddha taught when he was teaching that everybody is suffering. Mm-hmm. Everybody, um, from you know, from the the highest echelons of society to the lowest, and people everywhere and every time, there is always suffering going on. And the Buddha looked at uh, at the causes of this, and he said it was fixation and grasping and fixation and grasping i know that some buddhist texts use the word desire and that's a fine word you know that's mm-hmm. being the cause of suffering but fixation and clinging seem to me to imply the willfulness of a of a person who's like an ultra individualist you yeah know? you're right i think that's true if I can just and, jump and in so for a second. Um, sure. A couple of observations real quick. I, I don't know if you know I'm Canadian as opposed to American. And I, I think culturally the U.S., that individualism you talk about is just way stronger than we see in a lot of other countries where we still do have that strong sense of community. Um, mm-hmm. and, and here, I, just in L.A. especially, it, it just it's just not there. It's a very egocentric kind of a, a society, which I do agree. I, I think really hurts a lot of people. And it deprives them of the, the benefits of that community existence. So I think it would be nice to get back to that. But the the question I have, coming from a non-Buddhist point of view, so I could be way off base, I think people mix up the idea of compassion with kindness. And I think that they're very different things. And for me, I see people that uh, sometimes I think are just feeling like you can't take a stand on anything or that you... Where compassion to me, I always said the easiest way I put it is kindness wants you to feel better and compassion wants you to be better. So it's the idea of what will be in your best interest, what will help you with your growth. And so it can be tough love and not just enabling, but um, or kindness, you know, part of it too. But I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit more on compassion and what you see compassion as being. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that um, it really does begin with that recognition that everyone is suffering. Because once you see that everyone is suffering, you actually, as you said in your definition, you want them to feel better. You want them to not suffer. 
and you want them to be happy. And so, interestingly enough, the Buddhist definition of love is the wish for another to be happy. Mm. And the Buddhist definition of compassion is wishing for that other to be free of suffering. And so if if we look at loving kindness from that point of view, it, it's born from an empathy for the suffering of other people. And if we can recognize our suffering and see how we suffer, then we can make that, that sort of um, empathetic jump to thinking about the suffering of others. And then we can begin to cultivate consciously cultivate the wish for them to be happy and for them to be free of suffering. So that's what compassion meditation in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition is all about, is taking what we naturally have, which is this natural feeling of love and compassion that we have for ourselves and for other people, and then expanding it through uh, the process of taking the Bodhisattva vow, uh, holding oneself accountable daily for one's activity toward oneself and others and so on. But what you're talking about in terms of of uh, trying to make people be better, I don't know that we can make people be better, but what we can show them is we can show them through recognition of the suffering of other people and showing them that they themselves can have an impact on that suffering lessening that suffering. I think that's a really that's a that's a wonderful way to bring some uh some spiritual dimension into an everyday life. I don't know, but that may not be answering your question, Michael. No, I I think that touches on it a lot and you know as I said, I, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to the idea that it has to come from a place of love in the sense that I want this person not to suffer or not to create suffering if they're doing things to harm others and so forth. And, um, you know, and you're right. I think you, you I, I've often said you can save people from lots of things, but you can't really save them from themselves. And so I think that they have to have that desire within to, to be a better person and to sort of do that. But I still think we, we try and show them the way as much as we can and, and hope that they will understand and embrace it, you know. So. Well, and, and I think that that's what the Buddha was doing when he, when he taught his Four Noble Truths, when he said, hey, suffering's part of life. He's trying to let them know that, yes, you will have suffering in your life so that we don't go to that sort of ultra-individualist viewpoint, which is like, I should have no suffering in my life. Those other people, they can have it, but not me. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So if we can kind of recognize that everybody's suffering and that and that there's no reason why you should be like without suffering when everybody else has it. Right. And this that it's kind of an interesting viewpoint, but yeah. you know, yeah. a lot of people when bad things happen they say why me? But from the Buddhist point of view, it's like, well, why not you? Why should you be so special that you have no <laughs> suffering, you know? And, and I mean, anyhow, I just thought that was an interesting uh, way to begin it. I had a, a Buddhist friend say, "Well, why not you?" you it's know? so funny. We and, had our, and, our friend uh, Reverend Jim McGrath on a couple of weeks ago, and we, I was telling him a story that he'd forgotten that we were having dinner one time. And I said, "Do you understand the real message of the crucifixion?" He said, "Well, Christ died for our sins." I said, "Well, I don't think that's it. I, I'm a heathen. I don't have the education you have." But I said, approaching it logically, I said, "Christ was the Son of God, right?" He said, "Yeah." So God was his dad, right? I said, 
He said, yeah. I said, well, that's better than having Bill Gates as your dad or Warren Buffett as your dad. God is the most powerful and impotent force in the entire universe, and he's your father. And yet here the Son of God still finds himself nailed to a cross. So isn't the real message of even the Son of God can have a bad day? What makes you think you're so special <laughs> that your life won't have some, mm-hmm. some pain in it on some level? And it's not that we're being punished or that God hates us. It's just life can be difficult and arduous at times. And then the, the resurrection message is if we face our adversity with courage— and character and rise above it, then life becomes good again, so to speak, and all this goes in cycles. But he thought that was funny. He said he was going to use it for a sermon, so I wish I'd gone and listened to his sermon. <laughs> it would have been fascinating. <laughs> well, see, and there's a lot of this cross-pollination that goes on through conversations like the one you've had with him and the one we're having now. There's a lot of, see, human beings, we're always in conversation with each other, let's face it, right? And we're always learning and evolving, always learning and always evolving. And I think that that um, that this is how we begin to see a better way for ourselves in the world. And so hearing that idea of, of about Christ kind of opened his mind to something. You see what I'm saying? And something you've just said reminds me about one of the teachings about the bodhisattva, and that's the word courage. Mm. Because... because Part of what they, uh, one of the definitions of the of the word bodhisattva, bodhi refers to being awakened from the sleep of ignorance, meaning that we're ignorance of suf- uh, ignorant of suffering and its causes, and its real causes. Often we think that suffering's caused by something external, the boss, the neighbor, the whoever, right? Mm-hmm. But really, the cause of suffering is how we react to the things that happen in our lives. And so our own habitual tendencies toward selfishness, toward that feeling like, why me, you know? Mm-hmm. And, why, you know, the refusal to say, why not me? And so that is what the Buddha is awakened from, the sleep of ignorance about suffering as causes. And sattva, bodhisattva, is a person who is, who is trying to develop the mind of enlightenment, the mind of awakening. Mm-hmm. And the other thought about the Bodhisattva, another translation is that they are a warrior of awakening. Oh, I like that one. And like that one. yeah, the awakened warrior. And the reason that warrior is used, according to some of the scholars that I've read, is, is that it takes courage to confront our own selfishness. Mm-hmm. Especially on and, a daily really, basis. <laughs> Right. Well, right. First, first we have to see it, right? Mm-hmm. And and although our friends are probably always pointing it out to us, we're just not willing to listen, <laughs> right? Because every day they, they're they're uh, somebody said once, well, all of your friends who criticize you are actually serving the function of a spiritual teacher because they're pointing out to you the faults in yourself you don't want to see. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about good friends now. We're not talking about you know. Sure. <laughs> the ones that are, are are trying to hurt you. We're talking about the people who really want your your benefit, and I think that that's why the Bodhisattva path is so effective because it it involves this self honesty. A lot of my friends in twelve step recovery, they you know when you when you're in recovery from addiction, they say being honest with yourself about who you've been, where you've been, what you're doing. That actually helps bring change, and that's how people slowly give up the addiction hmm. of selfishness is by recognizing on a daily basis, morning and evening, 
who have I harmed? Have I harmed myself? Have I harmed others? And then saying, you know, I'm going to do better. And that's really what maintaining the Bodhisattva vow is about. You take it morning and evening in front of an uh, in front of a, either an imagined uh, Buddha or Bodhisattva. You take it there and say, well, now you're my witness, and I'm going to try to do well today. I'm going to try to not harm myself and try to not harm others. And at the end of the day, we check in and say, well, how how did I do? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's how we gradually change. Our behavior is by taking responsibility and, on the one hand, with the courage to, to face yourself, and then secondarily with the with the the wish to be to be a cause of happiness both for yourself and others. There's in in at least Tibetan Buddhism, there's a formal taking of the Bodhisattva vow, which um, I took, and it had quite an impression on me, even to this day. I, I just remember. There, there is something about ritualizing vows that really do make them very effective, even if, you know, you don't keep them perfectly. Or, uh, But I, I thought it was particularly powerful and beautiful at the time, and um, not everybody would necessarily do that. But is, is there a way a person that isn't a Buddhist could do something like you're saying a little more formally? Because I know a lot of people like people, rituals coming back to people in their, their lives. They, they really benefit from a ritual. And is there something they could do that's an ordinary version um, that, let's say, they're just a different religion and they want to keep their religion, but they like the bodhisattva ideal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, I think that uh, what you're saying about ritual is true in that it creates an atmosphere uh, uh, in which we allow ourselves to change. And and I think that really good teachers and really good um, spiritual friends can help us create that atmosphere. And I think that people who have a belief and and a power greater than themselves can um, can check up with their higher power every day. Mm-hmm. And I think the the daily part of it is actually good. Uh, in in the Buddhist tradition, there's a a, um, a phrase or a prayer that's recited in the morning and the evening. It's, may all beings be happy and have the causes of happiness. May they be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May they have that great happiness, which is freedom from suffering. May they dwell in great equanimity, free of attachment and aversion. And I think that that's, um, that's kind of a it's it's a neutral religion mm-hmm. prayer if you want to put it that way it can it can be said by people of all faiths and so yeah, that, that is beautiful I say day, that one a lot that one's a really beautiful one <laughs> they call it the four the prayer of the four immeasurables because mm-hmm. if we have immeasurable love and we practice immeasurable compassion then immeasurable joy is the result um, but I my teacher, Campo Carterim, she says it all begins with uh, immeasurable equanimity, meaning <laughs> that we see others as being the same as us. And that, so you might sense. start your day by saying, yeah, you might start your day by saying, may I recognize suffering in myself and others, and may I strive to, uh, to not harm myself and not harm others and to try to benefit them as much as possible. I think those are something, those are simple aspirations that any person of any faith could make. And then at the end of the day, 
What's interesting about the Bodhisattva vow is it's a vow of training. It's not a vow of perfection. In fact, one one of the books I read about it, mm-hmm. the Lama said, uh, the Lama said, you don't wait to take the Bodhisattva vow until you're already perfect. That's not the point. <laughs> the, the the point is to take the Bodhisattva vow because you're imperfect, mm-hmm. and you want to slowly and gradually improve. Because the actual words of the vow are. Just as the Buddhas, after we take refuge in the Buddhas, the teacher and the Dharma, the path and the Sangha as the community, then we say, just as the Buddhas of the past trained gradually, stage by stage, in the Bodhisattva's activity, so too, for the benefit of myself and others, I also will train as they did and gradually become proficient. And so since it's a training, we start in the morning with our in the, in the presence of our higher power and say, well, I'm going to try my best to uh, do no harm and to practice goodness and to tame my mind. I'm going to try to do those three things. And then at the end of the day, we're going to say, well, how did I do? <laughs> and, uh, and there's one story about an old Buddhist teacher who had two bowls on his, um, on his uh, prayer table. And one bowl was the the prayer, I mean, was the, I'm sorry, one bowl was the bowl where he put stones when he remembered something good he had done. And then the other bowl was where he put the stones where he remembered harm he had done. So he would kind of see which bowl had more stones in it at the end of the day. Then he would rejoice in the good things he had done, regret the things that he had done that he's not proud of, and then said, I am going to do better tomorrow. I love that. yeah, and then you go to sleep and you think, hey, where if I'm going in my dreams tonight, may I not harm beings there and may I benefit them? What an interesting <laughs> way to go to sleep, right? Yeah, no, yeah, even the dream world. Uh, I was thinking when you were talking about the gradual training of the mind is the one thing I really, really appreciate is that I am not the most patient person even now, but because I was introduced to Buddhism at a very young age and the idea that it takes a long time to deeply change your habits. I really embraced that idea. And as I've gotten older, it's really helped me not to think, you know, in one day, I'm going to change this habit of mine or, but to keep kind of chipping at it and chipping at it. And, and then the other thing that Kemper Rinpoche, I remember taught um, was that it's better to do something a little bit every day than once a week, because it has that snowball effect. So maybe you only have 15 minutes a day. But that's good. So you start with that. And that really stuck with me as well. And I, I really appreciate that I was given a couple good habits uh, at a young age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Boy, that makes so much sense because that's how we gained all of our habits is one thought at a time, one situation at a time. And when a person learns quiet sitting meditation, which um, in, it's called shamatha or uh, uh, tranquility or uh, calm abiding. Uh, when you're doing breath awareness meditation, just being aware of the breath and the thought comes through, then uh, that thought may just be able to go straight through. But if that thought comes to you and it distracts you from your uh, from your uh, attentiveness to your breath, that's actually part of the practice of meditation. I think people go wrong when they think, that they're supposed to clear their mind, like you're taking a broom and cleaning your mind, mm-hmm. when really it's it's cultivating that little bit of attention mm-hmm. uh, when you're being attentive to the breath. And right. then 
then there's this slightly longer period of, of mental, you know, mental wandering. But when you notice that mental wandering and then, uh, and then redirect your attention back to the breath, it's for a fresh start. You're, you're giving yourself a fresh start. But what's really interesting to me is that what happens, I think about what happened to that thought that was so darn important a minute ago. <laughs> Poof, it's gone. And all of my habits are made of those. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they're building you know, blocks. Exactly. And so if you can let go of one thought, that means that gradually, over time, all things have the potential to be changed. And that's that's something I really deeply appreciate about Buddhism is that uh, it has so many different techniques for different individuals to actually train the mind, which... To be honest, I haven't found anything quite as effective personally um, for that. For there, there's other things that that I do. So that's one reason I kind of came back to doing some of the practices. I said they, it's like they really got a, you know, a PhD plus in how to train the mind, <laughs> and 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 there's something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I think it's really true. Um, the um, the the Tibetans uh, imported Buddhism because, of course, it was not their original um, society faith. They had um, they were shamanists, um, very much like the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the Buddhists, once they imported Buddhism, they um, they decided to import everything. They imported uh, the texts, the sutras, the tantras. They just they they put it all. They brought it all to Tibet, which was kind of lucky because. In the, I believe it was in the um, 12th century, I believe uh, that there was an invasion in India, and a lot of the, um, a lot of Buddhist temples and uh, and universities were wiped out, mm. and so all of the missionaries who had gone to uh, northern and southern Asia and so forth, uh, they were basically they saved Buddhism. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting historical fact, but. Um, but the Tibetans, it also explains why the Tibetans ended up with so much, is because they were, they were voracious readers and voracious collectors, and they came and got as many teachings as they could get, received uh, as many blessings as they can get, and even invited teachers from India to come to Tibet to teach there as well. And so I think that uh, because they have all of these methods, they have quiet sitting meditation, which helps to, helps to anchor the mind, and then there's the compassion meditation where we take the the bodhisattva ideal and then we, we rehearse actually expressing love for ourselves and others uh, through meditation. And then finally, mantra practice, which helps us to bring forth the, the inner nature that we have, which I know we're Buddhists, we're going to be a little parochial and we're going to call it Buddha nature. But it's but we have the mind that can wake up to its own basic nature and become free from suffering and its causes. So that's why we have all of these different techniques. Some people don't like quiet sitting. Mm-hmm. It just it just doesn't do any. It doesn't really do anything for them. But they can chant a mantra. Mm-hmm. That's just as as legitimate. A, a, a type of uh, shamatha as being quiet and sitting. That's what I do, and I so, I definitely like it better. I and I'm more I'm more dedicated to it. I notice I stick with mm-hmm. it more, and it, it and I can see the effect on my mind, and and it, even just seeing how it calms me. It, it's amazing how quickly 
and it will calm my mind. And, and of course, the idea of me calming my mind is then I can not react to the thoughts and I can actually think about what I'm going to do or say. And, and, and that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's a, a basic starting point for me. It, well, and that's the and that's the point because I was just recalling something that Michael said a little bit ago about sort of where we've come in society and and this where, what this individualism has taken us to, and I think that part of the reason that it it has gotten so severe is because we are not allowed we're not allowing ourselves to be with ourselves, we're not allowing ourselves to be with our thoughts, we're not allowing ourselves to just be which is something we learn how to do when we're meditating. And that's where the non-reactiveness, or shall we say reduced reactiveness, yes. comes from. <laughs> it, it, you know, we don't eliminate reactiveness because, you know, we still have our prejudices. But mm -hmm. gradually, we, when we stop reacting um, in a, I, I don't want to use a, uh, in a, an extreme way, when we stop our extreme reactiveness, then that gives us some internal space to make better decisions, which I think is what you're getting at, yes, is that we can make better decisions about what to what type of reaction is going to be best in the situation, and what type of reaction is just going to lead to more trouble. And I think being able to just take that uh, those few minutes to practice, uh, whether it's mantra meditation or quiet sitting meditation, it's going to really help. I think also the, the mantra all money. Padme Hom is the, probably the most popular mantra in mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhism, and Om Mani Padme Hom or Om Mani Padme Hom is a compassion mantra, so mm -hmm. it's got some benefits. I was going to say that sorry, I also. Michael. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I, I think also I see so many people that identify who they are by what they have. So it's their job that makes them who they are. It's the groups they belong to, their friends. But they identify with all these things outside of themselves. And then when something happens to that stuff, it, it's a big problem for them that they get into a huge crisis that causes so much suffering rather than realizing I always say to people if I wasn't here I'd just be somewhere else and who I'm what I'm doing and everything it's not who I am who I am is just something I am you know and but I see that here that so many people that just suffer and suffer because they're not attaining something in their career that they thought they would or they have all these goals that they haven't achieved that causes them to suffer and rather than, than seeing that these things are, are not who I am, you know. So that, to me, is, is a big cause of suffering as I see it. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that, um, that what you're saying is really true because I think for a lot of people, because they don't have the opportunity to develop an inner life, they, because the world is so mm. noisy and stimulating and... Uh, oppressive, and they're and people from the time they're small are encouraged to achieve, achieve, achieve. Then their default mode becomes worldly. Mm -hmm. Worldly achievement becomes their sort of default mode, and and that's I think why these um, exterior accomplishments become so darn important to people is because they have not had the time or they have not been given the time when they're young or had taken the time when they're older to develop an inner life and to develop a sense of meaning and purpose. Because I think with the, with, uh, the, the change in people's subscription to various mainline churches, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people have lost their sense of community and purpose, and that's not going to happen. It's not gonna, there's nothing filling the gap. 
except for maybe politics. People think, well, that's my new religion is politics and my, and just as some people think my religion makes me superior than others, now people are saying my politics makes me superior to others. We're human beings, my gosh. I tell you what, this superiority thing has got to stop. It does. It. The, we are in a, a, I don't know, a, the height of narcissism is unbelievable. I mean, it, you know, we live in Los Angeles, so maybe it's even more extreme here, but uh, we've been here a long know. time, and it, it's definitely taught me about the rough edges of the world, Los Angeles, from the deep suffering to the violence to the the differences in wealth and you got you know it's 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 kind of shocking when you live in cities like that and you haven't before and i've never luckily gotten used to it i don't want to get used to it um but i think that this this it's it's become even more than individualism it's become much more me first uh, and and you know some of it i know is people trying to survive because of the difficulty in money and they, you know, they feel they have to do that to survive, which I don't think is true, but that that's why some people will do that. But um, the loss of the community is a really big deal. And I, I there's nothing like I, I one of my fondest memories, honestly, was when I belonged to the KTC in North Carolina and I went to the two uh, also Trumper Rinpoche's group. And I really, really enjoyed it then. I have really good memories of it. Yeah, we had little problems and things that you, but you learn to deal with it when you, when you're always in person dealing with each other. You, whereas I don't know, we're not learning to deal with conflict because we're not together really. <laughs> so it, it, it's this loss of community. You're right, is is really quite um, not a healthy thing. I, I think we can maybe reshape our thoughts about community. I'm all for that, but um, it's we need we need that. I think. And there's so many ways to, to create community, and I think that um, and I think that as time goes along, I think what you're seeing now is we're, you're seeing some people turning around and saying, "Wait a minute, how did we get here exactly?" And and they're beginning to say, "Well, let's try to find ways to be together intentionally." Mm -hmm. And and I do agree that because it's so hard to make a living that people are so uh, sort of absorbed with just making a living, just surviving, that I feel that uh, some of the things that have gone by the wayside have been the sense of community. They can, people just can't afford it. Mm -hmm. They can't afford to develop community because they're so busy trying to make ends meet. Right. And, uh, and I, that's, that was the impression uh, I got when I was in Los Angeles some time back, was that people have to work so hard to make a living there. And I think it's true in all big cities, really. Yeah. Even in Columbus, I think, um, in the middle of the Midwest, you know, people still have to work very hard to make a living. And I think that this is why we're having the crisis of hope, is, which is what my minister friend calls it. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the, the kind of crisis of hope among human beings. We need to, we need to, uh, to find purpose and meaning. And if we can find that purpose and meaning, then the uh, of not having a great deal of resources it will not be as much of a cause of suffering because we'll have people and situations we can rely on a bit more. But it's going to take a, it's going to take a, a conscious movement of people toward community and toward. Um, this is really funny that we're talking about the bodhisattva ideal because 
sometimes first you have to have the idea of wanting to be uh, connected to others. And in the in the bodhisattva meditations and uh, that you do the compassion meditation, you just mentally you sit in your meditation seat and you mentally extend love first to yourself, then to the people who are close to you, but then you begin to mentally extend love beyond yourself into the community and into the world and into the universe until you can even include people you don't approve of or people who've harmed you. And because you're just mentally extending love by using your imagination, this is something you can do just in five minutes. You Mm -hmm. don't have to do this over a huge amount of time. The Dalai Lama has said, just using this mentally extending love, this technique of mentally extending love is great because then what he was saying then is that you can actually begin mentally extending love to people who you see on the street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and even for people who are working really hard, you actually have the potential to bless with your intention and aspiration every person you encounter. And in, and living in L.A., for me, when I remember to do that, um, especially with some of the certain homeless people, especially like I'll be on the bus and I'll see something and I know I really in the moment can't do anything. And I just try to, in my mind, extend a thought of compassion to that person. And and I because it's 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 one of those things about being a big city. In a way, it can be the fuel to help you recognize suffering on a daily basis if you don't you know cut yourself off from it and, and sort of numb out. Um, but I, I I think that that does help. I'll just tell myself, well, that's all I can do right now. I really can't do anything in the moment, and if I can, I will. But um, and it's a start. That's how I see it. I think that this is really true because we have to start with the ideas. The ideas and the thoughts and emotions are what got us into this predicament. And in the first place, and as my friends in 12-step recovery like to say, all of our best thinking has put us in this predicament. So maybe it's time to let somebody else drive, you know. And and I think that in my way of saying that is that we, if we can train in the opposite of selfishness, you have to see. I say train, <laughs> yes. because we can't very well say to somebody, "Oh, yeah, just let go of that," because you have to give them a method. You can't mm-hmm. just say, "Oh, you're suffering, just let that go." I mean, that's that doesn't that's illogical. Yes, and it's and it's actually hurtful. What we can do instead is say, um, maybe it's time to uh, to take good care of yourself and to do the things you need to do for yourself, and that once you start to feel better start to reach out to other people first with your imagination and just imagine that you bless people who pass you on the street or when you see somebody suffering and i think we do see the homeless suffering Uh, we have homeless in every part of the country and these are people who uh, who except for some situations could have been us yes you know and uh, although in some cases they do take a threatening pose because they've been so used to being pushed over, you mm-hmm. know, and that, you know, what is it, um, a, a best defense is a good offense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what happens is because of that, then they are really disliked by many because not only um, are they, they feel separate from people, they make themselves separate from people by uh, aggressive behavior. 
And so we can, even if we can't safely approach them, we can imagine a Buddha or a Bodhisattva dissolving into them and blessing them from a distance. And we can do this even with people we dislike. I know right now we are talking about how people are uh, really upset about politicians. Well, you can actually, at a distance, bless those politicians that you have objections to and <laughs> and make the aspiration that in the future they meet bodhisattvas. Mm-hmm. That's hard with Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I tell That's you a... what, somebody asked him, <laughs> Carter Rinpoche, how yes. to pray. He did. They asked him, how do we pray for, and they didn't mention anyone by name, Mm -hmm. but they said, how do we pray for people who do harm in the public sphere? And I think they were trying to make it obvious that they were talking about well-known politicians. Right. And he said, and he said, this is how you pray for them. He said, uh, he actually said this out loud, and somebody printed it into a prayer card. By the truth of the realization and wisdom of all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in countless realms throughout the ten directions, that's northeast, southwest, and up and down, may this person gradually transcend their current limitations, meet spiritual friends, enter the path, and gain liberation. Now, this is, this is talk about Bodhisattva courage. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, most worldly people, when they don't like somebody, you know, they condemn them and say, well, you know, damn you, and things like that. They say terrible things. But instead right. of saying that, Buddhists, Buddhist, we say, may you get enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story of an interview I had with Kemper Rinpoche. Um, I had, I was going through a very bad period, and I was always very honest with Kemper Rinpoche. I, I thought you were supposed to be, right? And So I'd mm-hmm, always tell him mm-hmm. what was really going on with me, and... My friends had, I thought, really let me down, and everything kind of, like, really dissolved, and I was really upset and angry. And so, of course, he said, well, you know, you know, when you're angry at someone like this, they're the ones. Or, and I, I was t- saying how they'd been so mean, and they had been. And so anyway, he's like, well, these are the people that need your compassion and, you know, you, that to work on the compassion towards them. And I said, I can't. <laughs> and he says, Aww. he said, he goes, well, how about neutrality? <laughs> I was like, he said, can you be neutral? And I said, I think I can. <laughs> so he, I'll never forget it because I was just so upset. I think that he knew that, you know, that was a good starting place for me. And that by just being neutral, everything kind of passed at some point. And I don't see them as horrible people or it didn't even take that long to tell you the truth. So I, I'll never forget uh-huh. that, though, because I could see he was kind of bargaining <laughs> with me. <laughs> I know. How about neutrality? Yeah. yeah. I, 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 think that's, I think that's really the, you know, that's to me, that's the great value of, of bodhisattvas is that they meet us where we are. You know what I mean? They meet yes. us where we are and they don't say, well, you have to kind of rise to this level before I'll even speak to you. They actually meet you where you are. And then they, they try to coax you oh, just a little bit right. to, to do something differently. Yeah. And I met a, I met a person once, um, and, and they, they also had a person in their life that had caused them great harm. And, um, and they said, well, there's just no way I can get over it. And I suggested, I said, well, could you pray for them? And they said, oh, I don't think so. And I said, well, okay, let me, let's try this. Before they became this terrible person, they had to be a child, right? Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah. 
And I said, well, could you pray for that child? Do you have like a photo of that person as a child? And they said, as a matter of fact, I do. Hmm. And I said, well, then pray for that little child because something happened to that little child to turn them into the person who hurt you. That's great. And, and so there's this sense that there's some little place inside us that can be opened up with compassion and kindness. And I think that's yeah. true. And that's and, probably one of the reasons through all the um, interviews I had with Kemper Rinpoche, I always felt he did give me what I needed at the time, um, even right afterwards. And I, I always remember thinking, like, how did he know that? Like, of all, I had one other English teacher in my life that was kind of like that. Her, she's just a beautiful human being and really got, kind of knew how I ticked and talked and what would get me to write better, what wouldn't. And, and I felt that kind of insight and how, you know, I think the teacher-student relationship, how a, a really great teacher just really gets the student, you know, and what's appropriate for that student, and another student might need a different method. Mm -hmm. so. I think that's really true, and the value of such people cannot be uh, overstated. I know that, uh, that in these modern times we have uh, heard of many, many situations in which teachers have not acted properly with students, but it just makes these um, instances where people have have really, really made a big difference in someone's life, and uh, that those are tr to be treasured. And I think they come from this uh, this willingness to just let go and to be with oneself, and to see how one's how we suffer. We look at our own suffering and see how we suffer, and that gives us the uh, the ability or the capability to sort of put ourselves in the shoes of other people and see how they might actually be suffering too and see that, you know, mean people are actually suffering. Mm -hmm. and, to, and just the ability to not react and just to be there with all of that, that allows, that opens up a space for creativity in our communications with others. If we're not busy judging them, we can actually perhaps be open to what does make them tick and what might be a path or a method for them. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm thinking that uh, being able to let go of selfishness in a situation or having to win something, you know, it, it, it really, you know, it, it, it does give us an opportunity to open up. One of the things I, I really um, think is important that Buddhism really seems to teach in my mind because of the sitting practice is the ability to deeply listen and first to yourself and then to other people because that can help open up the space. And do you find that to be true too, that that sense of, you know, that's part of the practice is the listening part? I think so because the the first person we have to listen to is ourselves, right? <laughs> yes. We're sitting there in meditation and, and our and our attention is like on the breath and coming in and our breath is going out and then suddenly, oh, this thing from the past is coming and oh or oh this worry from the future is coming and we have to kind of not clamp down and not and not say bad meditator. You know, we have to just <laughs> we have to notice that thought touch it lightly with our attention, let it go. I mean, essentially, we're patting it on the head and we're letting it go. And then gently, not with any blame or, or judgment, gently putting our attention back on the breath for a fresh start, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so in a way, the first person we have to learn how to listen to is ourselves and not to clamp down 
and just say, well, there I am. Aren't I amazing? <laughs> yeah, that's Aren't definitely eye-opening. I actually remember how hard I, I remember like doing a day sitting and all of a sudden I noticed my mind was gone literally for 15 minutes. Like I'd be like, where was I? <laughs> and I remember mm. thinking I had some of the wildest like distractions. Like, I mean, I, it, it sort of stopped after a while, but at the beginning it'd be my mind would come up with all kinds of gyrations to get me to, to not focus <laughs> on the breath. <laughs> so yeah so maybe Aww. maybe because I, I was young I don't know but that that I still remember that it was kind of amusing and looking in hindsight that was kind of painful at the time I think <laughs> so well yeah, well of course and there's that courage of self-honesty you know but after a while you know what Kemper Bache was he was just teaching um a uh, week before last at, at our home monastery at Karma Triana Dharma Chakra in Woodstock New York and and he was saying that he is convinced that if we train ourselves in love and being open to others and, and uh, thinking kind thoughts toward others, and I mean, because we're not, I mean, just to clarify, if we're thinking kind and loving thoughts toward others, this doesn't mean that we are not firm with them about bad behavior mm-hmm. and that we're not firm with them about expectations and for their behavior and what they can do. You can be firm without being angry. That's just a sidebar there, but it's a very interesting sidebar. But mm-hmm. in any in any case, he said that if we consciously work on feelings of love for others, he said after a while, he says at first it's artificial, but then it gradually becomes our reason for being, and it gradually begins to feed itself this feeling of wishing to benefit others actually becomes um, a force within us that it, it just keeps it just goes all by itself mm. and that you find yourself spontaneously listening and spontaneously being present for others without expectations that they're going to think you're great mm-hmm. or or say thank you for being a bodhisattva or whatever <laughs> get a bodhisattva you know. medal <laughs> I know, right? It's not gonna, it's not going to be like that. But he said that it actually will, and this he said a sense of well-being will arise in you because of of how you've been training yourself. I love that. So, yeah, I know. That's, yeah, and so I think that's really an encouragement to to begin to train in some method for love and yes. some method for compassion. Some method has to be applied so that we can um, bring out what's naturally there because we naturally have a lot of love and compassion. We just don't necessarily have it for everyone, mm-hmm. and that's why we have to train. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is a practice. Uh, now, we're getting close to the end, and I wanted to uh, mention how people can reach you, and I believe mm-hmm. it's Lama Kathy with a K. .net. That's your website. And you also, don't you come out here to Santa Monica once a year to uh, teach here? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's normally in the summer. And um, we're looking at the month of August this year. Uh, but you can go to um, uh, kagyu.org, K-A-G-Y-U dot O-R-G, and then look up the Santa Monica particulars. Uh, Good. And the Santa Monica, there's also a center in um, uh, and San Diego as well. Oh, I didn't know that. So, and and Santa Monica KTC is on Facebook. Uh, it's very easy to find under 
Santa Monica KTC, and they also have a website themselves.org. Uh, they, they're very good at sending out reminders, too, if you kind of join their, their website and get on their mailing list. Uh, so thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, reconnecting to, with you, uh, Lama Kathy, and um, hopefully I'll get to see you when you come out here. I uh, hope I can come out and see you in person. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd be lovely. And it is really great to reconnect. So thanks very much. It's, it's, it's great being in touch. And, and Michael, thank you very much as well, because um, I love those questions. And um, one of these days, we'll have to try to figure out how to how to change humanity one life <laughs> at a time. <laughs> We're doing it one word at a time. <laughs> one guest at a time. I, I'm not sure. But I, I always remain an optimist, oddly enough. You I mean, even despite, you know, the ups and downs of life, I still have hope. <laughs> so. so thank I you, think, everybody. Think, Go ahead. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, give us a thumbs up if you like the show. Let your friends know. And we'll see you next week as we continue to explore the esoteric and obscure. Have a great week.